Our guest today is Stephen Howe. Stephen Howe is an industry-recognized technology entrepreneur and investor. He's currently the chairman and CEO of New Fire Global Partners, a tech advisory and software development firm that is based here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, with team members worldwide. You can follow him at twitter.com slash Steve Howe. This show is being recorded and will be included in my podcast series called Digital Health Investor Talk. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Google, and Spotify. This is not investment advice, and we are not investment advisors. Today's topic is getting generative AI to work for you. Digital health companies are eager to apply generative AI to the biggest problems in healthcare, but are there pitfalls in the way? First off, here's the format of this investor talk. We'll talk for about 40 minutes about news and current events. After that, we'll move to our main topic of the day about AI, and we'll be taking call-ins from our audience. In order for you to do more than just watch, you need to register an account with call-in. To register, you can access call-in at callin.com or through the call-in social podcasting app in your app store. Um, the call-in platform works similarly to Twitter Spaces for a modern social audio experience. Once you've registered, you can use the text chat uh, or uh, press the, the call-in button to indicate you'd like to speak up in our discussion. So welcome, Stephen. Uh, uh, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you, Stephen. It's, I'm not sure if it's confusing you get the same name here, but uh, I guess I should say something like uh, 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 long-time listener, first-time caller or something like that. Um, but oh, I have always really appreciate your you know, thoughtful uh, discussions, and I look forward to you know, getting into it with you today. Um, by way of introduction, sometimes I introduce myself as um, kind of an MIT grad and Harvard dropout. Uh, and kind of while that, you know, broke my parents' heart, it's, I would say, not an, an uncommon story around these parts and, you know, a little bit of a badge of honor for uh, entrepreneurs. Um, but the company I dropped out of, you know, college for um, was to start a company called Patient Keeper uh, with my Harvard uh, Medical School uh, professor and friend, uh, Joe Bonventry. Um, and while there are many kind of twists and turns, uh, we had many years of some pretty interesting growth. Um, and the whole adventure is quite storied. And I think literally there's a uh, book called Smart Ups uh, written by our then uh, chairman of the board, which I think is still available on Amazon.com. Um, I started another company with an another physician friend, Vernon Huang, who was uh, once the medical director at Apple Computers at the time, before now they're Apple, I guess it's Apple. But um, um, also, that was a great, great example, a great example of entrepreneurial adventure, I guess. Um, and then, you know, just to share some more background, um, at 43, I got married for the first time um, and I was going to take a break. And and that's when New Fire happened. It's kind of um, it's that quote that John Lennon I, that I always get wrong, but something like life is what happens to you when you're busy making other plans. Um, so what at, at this time, I really was advising a lot of private equity, a lot of VCs, a lot of tech CEOs, having a lot of fun. I discovered I was really good at it and, you know, was making some very good money. Um, and um, it was on one of these kind of engagements. I was helping a private equity group in New York City uh, take a look and uh, try to drive a turnaround for a personalized medicine uh, genomics play in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And we were able to lead a pretty successful turnaround. And um, as part of that, uh, the company uh, kind of exited and, and actually with the chief data officer of that company and about 50 amazing engineers, uh, I hired them and started you know, New Fire Global Partners. And that, uh, that chief data scientist actually became my co-founder. Uh, 
Um, so today at New Fire Global Partners, uh, we provide advisory services. And with these engineers have the kind of actual muscle to uh, not just give advice, but get it done. And uh, since we started the company about six or seven years ago, we've grown to be about uh, 800, 700, 800 uh, people around the world in Europe, Latin America, and Asia. Um, and we provide a combination of advisory services from assessments, uh, interim leaders, and transformations, including AI transformations. So we'll talk more about that today. Um, and we also build out dedicated software teams all over the world. 80% um, of our business uh, is in healthcare, which ranges from provider, payer, life sciences, and consumer. And our customers tend to be publicly traded or PE backed, but we also have some VC backed and some early stage startups. So I'm hoping some of these kind of adventures we ha we've had that I've had will you know be interesting in today's conversation with you, Steve. That's great, thank you. Um, so now we're gonna move on to the current events section of the show and we'll, we'll talk about the macro outlook. So I think that the big news here, there's a couple of things going on one is that last week the Fed said that it, although it wasn't raising rates at that FOMC meeting, that it expected it could likely raise rates two more times in, in the rest of the year. So that it, I, I'm interpreting that as a big setback for the innovation economy, for entrepreneurs, for investors, unfortunately, because we were looking uh, to beat inflation and we were looking for, uh, to resolve uncertainties. And now that the Fed may raise rates twice, uh, that has reintroduced uncertainty. So that, that, so that, and I have an optimistic prediction about the investment environment for the future, but I'm moving that back a bit. So I was saying that we're going to see VCs return to a friendlier investment environment in the third quarter. And now I think it's going to be the fourth quarter. And the, I'd say that the conventional wisdom on that take is that it's going to be five or six quarters in the future before uh, VCs um, start lead investors start investing again at the same rate as before, and the investment environment turns um, turns a little better. So uh, that that's my interpretation of that. Um, Steve, do you follow ma uh, macro issues much? Do you have any thoughts about what the Fed did last week? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I, you know what you're describing. We we've seen you know much of the same in the conversations that we have. You know, some of these informal conversations. Like I said, it's um, the downturn brings uncertainty. Um, and we see challenges just across the board, especially for earlier stage non-revenue generating companies, but even kind of VC-backed companies that um, don't yet have a line of sight to positive EBITDA. Um, and maybe relevant to the conversation we'll have later today, you know, I think the exception, maybe the bright spot is around companies that are embracing generative AI. Um, there's kind of a, you know, there's gold in them hills kind of feeling where there's some like speculation and, you um, you know, I was looking at some pitch book data and it seemed like, um, you know, generative AI deals have gone from maybe in to 20 deals in May of 2020 to over 200 in May of 2023. And what we've also wow. heard, and I'm a limited partner in a couple of funds, uh, what we're seeing is um, for kind of startups that have an AI, generative AI component, there's probably a 20% premium on, um, on valuations. Um, so mm -hmm. it's an interesting kind of signal on the times. That's great, great data there too. Thank you. Um, so uh, another term has entered the lexicon and that is de-dollarization. I wasn't seeing this used at all a month ago and now uh, Janet Yellen has said that we will continue to see a slow de-dollarization. Uh, and so de-dollarization is bad for uh, 
for innovators in the U.S. It's bad for young company leaders. It's bad for investors. And this is a trend that's probably going to pick up a little bit. And basically what's happened is that um, you can sort of view a country's currency provides an extremely valuable service to everyone who uses it. All currencies are fiat and all of them inflate at least a little bit. And you can view that inflation as like the service fee you're paying for having this incredibly useful currency. Um, and the U.S. dollar is by far the most useful and most used currency all over the world. And in countries where you have two different countries and neither one of them has the dollar locally as its currency, uh, and they will transact in dollars. And certain uh, major commodity players like Saudi Arabia will only sell oil in dollars. Um, and this causes everyone to need dollars and to hold dollars and use dollars. And that's extraordinarily good for the U.S. government, which gets to do things like print money through seniorage uh, and have it be that uh, use spread out over a much larger economy than just the economy of the U.S., uh, and what we've seen happen is there was probably too much um, printing and spending because of the pandemic, because of the response to the pandemic, the attempt to, for the U.S. and the whole world, um, prevent a, a major global recession uh, during the pandemic. Uh, and this then has contributed greatly to uh, inflation that instead of being 2 or 3% creeping, creeping inflation is now 5, 6, 7%. That's more... Uh, you know, it's a strong inflation, um, not yet galloping inflation. And so some countries um, have seen this and they're saying, hey, I'm, I sorted a lot of my wealth in dollars and I just saw it lose 7% of its value. And so I'm going to diversify now. I'm going to move to other currencies. I don't quite trust that nice U.S. dollar that's so useful that only had 2% inflation in the past. There's also countries who feel a little burned. Uh, and an, an analogy here is that uh, when Edward Snowden, you know, uh, fled the U.S. and the National Security Agency and revealed that the U.S. was tapping the uh, the phones of An Angela Merkel and and the president of France and others, those countries said, we we have to, for the sake of our sovereignty, we have to have our own um, chips, our own systems, our own security for them. So we can't just have the U.S. listening into us. Um, and likewise, uh some countries have watched the U.S. go after Russia and other countries and confiscate their dollars uh, and their reserves um, and have said, well, we can't have all of our, we, we may be, you know, make up, choose your country. We may, may be Switzerland, we may, we may be um, Thailand, whatever. We can't just have all of our money in dollars or the U.S. might do that to us, even if it seems unlikely. So we need to diversify. And that act of de-dollarization of countries making a conscious choice to to make the dollar half or less than half instead of nearly all of their reserves, um, that sends mo that money back to the U.S., which is inflationary. And that's why it's bad uh, for, um, for uh, uh, the innovation economy, because that inflation is, is intrinsically bad for young companies uh, and creates uncertainty as well. Um, so uh, young, risky earnings negative companies want low interest rates and low inflation to get high valuations. And if we have high inflation because of de-dollarization, those dollars come back to the U.S., uh, that's bad news for the innovation economy. So that's that, that, that's an interpretation of de-dollarization. And Yellen, I think the, the government was not talking about this or was talking about it with, with saying it wouldn't be a problem. And Yellen last week for the first time said that she expects it will continue 
uh, gradually. So that's the first recognition, first interpretation of it we've seen from a major government official. Steve, any, any thoughts on that? On what it I, I, I missed that, but that's, uh, that's really interesting. I mean, thanks for sharing that. Um, so then um, the next is, uh, um, is inflation. Uh, so uh, I think the last major inflation report said inflation was at about 5.9% which I interpreted that as being, uh, you know, reasonable, not out of control. Um, one economist I really look to a lot is Lawrence Summers. He's the former president of Harvard. He's former secretary of the treasury. He speaks publicly about these issues. And he actually sees that level. He's a, it turns out he's an inflation hawk. Uh, he sees that level as too high and he thinks inflation is still a problem. So he is supporting um, the Fed, you know, saying it may raise rates further. Um, and so I think that that shows there's a consensus to continue to raise rates. Once again, that's bad for the innovation economy. Um, and then uh, recession concerns. I think the the conventional wisdom now is that we will go into a, a recession. It may be a shallow recession in the second half of this year, in the third quarter or the fourth quarter, Fidelity is saying we're at the end of an expansionary period. We will go into a contractionary period after that. Lawrence Summer saying it's coming soon uh, and both saying it could be shallow. Um, and that's bad for innovators as well because that makes the product buyers feel poor. If your product buyers are hospitals and, and payers and consumers and uh, the pharma software, the pharma tech budget, uh, or other budgets like that, it makes it, you're you're an innovator and you're trying to sell into these enterprises, and it makes them feel poor. So, um, anyway, that's uh, any thoughts on just this, this sort of wrap up and what it means for um, for innovators, Steve? Yeah, I mean, I mean that's right. I mean, we we definitely see this, um, you know, both in our interactions with technology companies. I mean, it's classic, right? I mean, there is a you know, there's a there's a, a fear, a lack of confidence in making longer term investments. You know, capital is hard to get. So, you know, the for the clients we work with, you know, the mean time to some return on the effort is much shorter. Um, it's just a signal everyone's very you know cautious. Um, I think it's so hard to predict <laughs> how things play out, but you know, without really the same data that you have, I mean, that you just referenced. Yes, it, it doesn't. I know everyone wants this quick and speedy return. It feel it feels like um, it's gonna take a little longer before we uh, before we get 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 kind of through the knot hole here. Mm -hmm. So then, um, some you know the some more positive news. Um, we've been seeing a tech rally recently, and I think this was unexpected. And we've seen a lift in the Nasdaq. And we all, I always like to watch the Nasdaq as a proxy for what tech valuations are. And so the NASDAQ, I think, is at around 13,700 and has been continuing lift over the past week. And some of that is being driven by optimism about AI in the NASDAQ. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, companies like chip manufacturers uh, or other companies that may benefit from from the boom in AI. But uh, I, and if you talk to Wall Streeters, they will say that, you know, that they, they have to put their money somewhere and most categories don't look great, um, but that tech and the NASDAQ is looking better than others. So on a relative basis, they've been putting their money in, in, in the NASDAQ. Um, and uh, also a, a positive surprise there is that, um, is that 
some commentators are now saying that the IPO window is open for the whole duration of my show. Every week we're on here, the IPO window has been closed. Um, but for the first time, we're hearing the IPO window is open. And this is a surprise because of the very successful IPO of Kava, a Mediterranean restaurant chain. Uh, <laughs> Kava went public. Um, it was, uh, you know, people have been saying that buy ciders, that's like the Fidelities and Black Rocks of the world, that they want IPO product. Uh, and sure enough, they wanted this. They oversubscribed. And since IPO, it's been up 117%. So that's that's quite a lift there. And what happens is when, when this happens, now, unfortunately for us, this is in, uh, this is in restaurants, uh, and we want to see this in tech and digital health, but it's a strong <clears throat> signal that you, that you would see a similar performance in tech and digital health. So this is enough to cause, so the IPO window was, was closed a week ago, and that means only really special companies can rarely make it through. Um, uh, and then people watch carefully the performance of those companies. So here's a, here's a huge hit. Kava is a huge hit with the market. Now, Back in May, we saw Kenview IPO. This was the consumer division of J&J. This one is a much closer comp for us to watch and much, much more useful for us to watch uh, because this is in healthcare and we want to see healthcare and tech companies go public first. And that would mean if they're successful, that would mean that there can be some digital health unicorns can go public after that. So, um, uh, so, you know, some observers are saying that it's, that the, they're going as far as to call that the IP window is now open for everyone because of the strong performance of Kava. Um, and I, I'm going to stick with my story, though. My story is that we're watching Kenview. Um, Kenview IPO at $20 a share. Um, it's, it's up since then. It has stayed up. That's good. That's what we need to see. Next, I'm watching ARM is planning an IPO probably for the fall. This seems to have been going relatively slowly. That's, that, that's not a good sign. Uh, but ARM, the UK chip maker, uh, is, uh, that, that's, that's tech. We want to see a tech company IPO and do well. And then and ARM is positioning itself to benefit from the artificial intelligence stock play since their chips are used for AI. Um, and then also Instacart. Instacart has said it will go public. We, we want to see, I, I still think we want to see ARM and Instacart go public and see their stocks go up and stay up. And when that happens, you will have tech company boards and digital health company boards will start to tell their CEOs to take steps to, to go to IPO. Um, there's definitely, on the supply side, there's lots of these companies that want to IPO to get liquidity for their investors. On the demand side, we're seeing that buy siders at Fidelity, BlackRock, et cetera, want to buy IPO product. Uh, and so, uh, you know, that's two great tastes that taste great together. Um, we just need to see a little more proof in the form of these two IPOs, ARM and Instacart, that haven't happened yet and that I'm following the progress of. So, uh, and, and this is part of the optimistic case is that the IPO window has been closed for a while. But I think it will open sooner than market consensus. I think we'll see the IPO window open, you know, in this quarter or next quarter um, for companies in, you know, and then um, uh, and then uh, I think that the the conventional wisdom is saying that it'll be four quarters until uh, the until the IPO window opens. And this is part of creating a better investment environment because investors can feel more confident that they're going to get their existing product out to the public on the, on the public markets and they can make more investments and they can start doing things like making CD and crossover investments because they can see the timing to, to a, to a reliable IPO. Um, so Steve, any, any thoughts on um, the IPO window? 
Yeah, well, it's so fascinating. Uh, a lot to unpack there. There's definitely a cognitive dissonance, right? I mean, it's uh, it's it's kind of hard to absorb. I'm, I'm just curious, and I, I don't follow this as closely as you do. Um, I guess with the IPOs priced conservatively, is that part of the you know you know the what's generating you know kind of a positive results? Yes. So, and and ironically, um, that 117 percent lift um, that is making observers like Jim Cramer or you or me excited about the stock market. But to bankers, you know, some bankers are, 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 you know, slapping their foreheads and saying that they goofed up on the pricing. So traditionally, <laughs> they, they, left, they what, left money on the table. Yeah. Um, and, and they, and, but they didn't know, and they probably couldn't have known, but they did. Um, and, um, but the way the process works is that um, in a good, in a well done IPO, that uh, the company and their bankers really, really, really want the very best mutual fund investors, not hedge funds, not retail, um, to commit when they're in the book building phase to mm -hmm. buy large chunks and implicitly to hold. They can't force them to hold, but to commit to buy and hold. And that will lead to support in the aftermarket, a lack of um, of excessive uh, volatility, sure. um, more confidence of other investors. And so what they do is they literally, they price it. Uh, they figure out, well, this company has, there's a range. This company has the best brands at higher margins. So we'll price it at the top of the range of its peers. And then they literally apply a 15% discount to it. Um, and that goes to, uh, and, and to the, you know, and then, in this process, there are leading buy-siders at places like Fidelity or BlackRock who will make an early big commitment. I will commit to buying a big allocation. And then they get those shares at the public offer price, which happens at the morning of the IPO, um, at, that is a 15% discount. Uh, and then uh, the reward they get is that, uh, is that in theory, they're going to see, and this happened with Kenview, it goes up 15% and then it stays up 15%. That's the reward. And that's alpha. And that's alpha they only get from being able to participate in an IPO. Um, the problem is, is that six months down the road, uh, support craters, stock price falls. They'd like to sell, but they committed to hold for the long term. Uh, and they, they can, they're not legally held to that, but they're committed to hold for the long term. And then if they sell two to get out, then the next IPO that comes along, Morgan sure. Stanley is not going to like them anymore. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, so that that's how that that game is played. Right. Um, so then, um, let's see. So that's that's a, a review of of the um, of the macro outlook. Any other thoughts on that before we move to the next section, uh, Steve? No, that's 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 great. Thanks for sharing all that. So next is, is news from the week. So in this part, for our audience, um, if you have any stories you'd like to get our reaction to, you know, feel free to put them in, in the room chat. But my story of the week here is going to be, first of all, um, it's, it was a slow week in terms of digital health news uh, in the innovation economy part of digital health, which is young companies and VC investors. Um, slow week, again, more layoffs and shutdowns than fundraisers and launches, unfortunately. Um, and then, but we did see um, uh, hybrid behavioral healthcare company Octave Health raised $52 million in a Series C. Um, uh, and that was led by Cigna Ventures. That was probably partner Tom Olenzak there. 
um, so, uh, backed by Novo Holdings and Avidity Partners. Um, the CEO at, uh, at Octave is Sandeep Archaya. Uh, the company offers in-person and virtual uh, behavioral and mental health care um, with personalized care plans for couples, individuals, and families. Competitors are like Lyra Health and Spring Health. So what do I see from this deal? Um, first of all, there's not a lot of deals announced this week. I mean, this is a week's worth of deals uh, and there's, there just weren't many. Usually two years ago, we were seeing, you know, over three deals a day. Um, so that's a measure of how down we are. But the first thing I'd say is that this is reinforcing the idea that, that investors like hybrid care. So hybrid care is care where there is, first of all, we're talking about care not software. So this is VC investors who like investing in software products, but in digital health, they're investing in care companies um, because it's so hard to sell software into the healthcare buyers. It's actually easier to start a medical practice than it is to sell software to a medical practice. Um, so for, it's a care company. Second, it's a hybrid care. Hybrid care, that's a term being used a lot. Fundamentally, it means that they're offering um, bricks and mortar care, and also uh, online care as well. And that gives them an advantage in, in both areas. Um, and it offer, often it means new care delivery models. So for example, um, instead of seeing a therapist by driving to their office and parking and, and waiting in their waiting room and meeting with them, uh, you are seeing a therapist on your phone, for example. So that, this is what we're talking about with, with hybrid care. Next is... Um, investors doubling down on what I'll call de-risking. So we're seeing a bimodal distribution here. Investors, some investors very excited about investing in um, AI at the seed stage and some investors confident in investing at the series C stage for probably inside rounds or this was not an inside round, but oftentimes it's, it, they, investors are picking winners in their portfolio company and doubling down on them. Um, uh, but then the poor companies who are trying to raise an A and B find that, in, that lead investors are not leading, that they're, they're swimming in the pool, but those lead investors are sitting on the bleachers, not jumping in. Uh, and we're, we're trying to figure out uh, what it's going to take for them to, to jump in. Um, so this is, I think, investors doubling down on de-risking. They've identified a company that is a winner and they're, and they're putting more money behind it, a big, a big round behind it. Um, and lastly, also, just um, there's been a, a huge trend of investing in behavioral health and mental health uh, in the market. And so this deal is consistent with those three. It, it shows that those, those trends are, um, are, are being sustained. So, uh, Steve, any, any thoughts on, on this deal? Um, in the specific deal, I, look, I think I, um, it's, this is a pattern we've seen before, right? I mean, I think... Um, um, it's in terms of investors de-risking, saving their dry powder and all this. Um, you know, it's, I think for the earlier stage businesses, it's so tough. There's always been a kind of a chasm between like that early angel funding and a real series A. And it feels like at this time that, that gap is growing even bigger. Right. So mm -hmm. I just, I, you know, I, I, I certainly feel for all those, you know, early stage, those entrepreneurs of early stage businesses, it's really clearly are a, a tough time, you know, and, and, but separately, I'm really interested in getting your thoughts on just the, you know, we've seen this focus and interest in behavioral health. What do you think is driving that? I mean, I know there are new, you, you know, uh, the new drugs coming out and so forth. And a lot of kind of interest and focus on 
you know, therapies that, you know, uh, uh, support, you know, behavioral health. Um, obviously there's an addiction kind of focus as well out there, but what do you think, what's, what's making this area so hot? What's making behavioral health so hot? So, um, uh, I, that's a really good question. Uh, b- before I address that, by the way, just for our audience, who's hearing this sort of doom and gloom news, um, I've been talking to a lot of VCs, a lot of young company leaders who are watching VCs. And my estimate is that when it comes to series CD crossover and IPO, the number of those happening in digital health is down 90 to 100 percent in that area. Then in rounds A and B, that is down 75 percent as compared to the boom years of 2020 and 2021. And then um, uh, seed rounds seem to be down about 25 percent. So they're not, they're not down all that much compared to boom years. And some of that's being driven by AI deals. So now investor interest in behavioral and mental health. So if you had gone to employers, and here I'm talking about employers, VP of HR and benefit leader, and these are people who really know their medical trend, they really know the, what, their, what their large company, the progressive large employer is spending on health. And you said to them, what are the, condi- the chronic conditions or, or the major conditions that you are spending on, that you are concerned about, that you want to do something about. And they, they, they all would have said the same thing. They would have said, number one, diabetes, number two, prediabetes and other metabolic, number three, hypertension, uh, number four, uh, musculoskeletal. And, and so literally we've seen uh, hot companies in all of those areas. So diabetes, that's literally Livongo right there. Um, musculoskeletal, that's Hinge and Kaya uh, and, and others. Um, and uh, so, then starting with the, the pandemic, they started to say also behavioral health and mental health. So if you think about it, you had people staying at home. That's a big life change. Maybe they got some lift in their life from talking to their friends at work. Um, and now they're working from home. And the, also the world is being consumed in a giant, um, you know, uh, world historic first, you know, pandemic. And they're watching this unfold and it's leading the news every night. And uh, there were also anecdotal stories that um, alcohol consumption went way up during this time. So you're locked in your house, <laughs> you get to go to the yeah. supermarket. Yeah, uh, no, comment, buy, Steve, no comment, no <laughs> comment. Uh, you, you buy the alcohol and then you drink it uh, and you're, you're at home all day or whatever. Um, and you, you aren't hanging out with your friends or whatever. Um, so I, I, and then this uh, elevated so people really care about what those issues are for employers. In fact, um, a lot of people you know, really want to figure out how they can somehow be in that top five issues of most concern to employers if, you're, if you have a digital health solution. And all of a sudden, behavioral health, mental health became a clearer category um, and became part of that top five. So it's now part of the top five. Um, uh, and uh, in addition... It might also be a generational thing, which is that, you know, younger people are being much more open about saying, I have ADHD and I would like treatment for it. Whereas older generations, you know, might have, you know, wanted no one ever to know that they had ADHD, wouldn't want the bill to appear on their medical record so that someone somewhere might know someday that they had ADHD or something like that. So a younger generation that may have more issues, but also is more open to talking about issues and seeking help about issues. So... That's the, my, my thoughts on that. Interesting. Um, and a- any other news of the week uh, from uh, from you? News of the week? Uh, no, nothing to add. Nothing to add. So then I'll 
I'll touch on valuation issues. So as a whole, digital health, high-flying, high-growth, public, earnings-negative digital health stocks are down 80% from the boom. So this is, uh, and uh, I heard some stats like, uh, so I'm not sure if these are still accurate, but they were accurate at some point. Uh, Some analysts put together some numbers like every digital, public digital therapeutics company is trading at less than cash. And every SPAC digital health company is trading at less than paid in capital. Um, uh, so I, 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 I didn't check those myself, but this is some of the scuttlebutt that, that I've been hearing, uh, which, which then means that um, if they're trading at less than paid in capital, it means that it's going to be hard for management uh, of them to ever for their for their equity to ever be worth anything. Um, uh, and so uh, so valuations are down a lot. Um, the most recent um, SAS capital index for the end of May um, found median valuation levels for all SaaS companies, that includes high growth, but also um, large and cash flow positive and stable companies, of 6.5 times forward revenue. So that, that's an interesting number to reflect on as a valuation number. And uh, that was trending up a little bit from the prior month, which is probably reflecting the lift in the NASDAQ due to the AI boom and tech optimism. Um, and uh, the long-term median of of all large public SaaS companies is trading is for them to trade at about eight times forward revenue. So during this, uh, the, the, the median has sunk by 1.5 points, basically. Um, and we might expect in the future that it, that it might go back up to about eight, but it may not go all the way to eight um, because we're now in a higher interest rate, higher inflation environment, probably for the longer term. So meanwhile, though, high growth SaaS is trading at eight to 12 times forward revenue. So those are, those are some growthier valuation numbers. And this compares to the highs of 2021 when the median SaaS traded at 16 times forward revenue and high growth traded at 30 to 35 times forward revenue. So those are some astonishing valuation numbers wow. that were far above uh, you know, the, the long-term historical trend of eight times for 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 average, not high growth, um, uh, you know, SaaS companies. Um, the, the valuation environment is still risk off. What risk off means is that uh, investors, you know, uh, don't like earnings negative growth stories as much as they would. They're, they're preferring safety. They're preferring cash flow positive uh, companies. Um, so VCs are saying that uh, companies need to belt tighten their own portfolio companies, other companies, that they've been saying this for a year and companies have not belt tightened enough and therefore they still need to belt tighten further. Um, uh, and um, that these that companies that got high private market valuations, those are now unrealistic and need to come down. But they, in general, there are many companies that are not addressing this quickly. So if you need to raise money and you formerly were valued at 35 times forward revenue. Um, uh, That's probably going to have to come down. But some companies, for various reasons, want to keep it that way. For example, a CEO might be happy with a fundraise at a new valuation level at a down round, but a board member might not want to see that. They might like like that number on on their books, staying at the formerly high valuation level. Maybe they're a VC, maybe they're trying to raise a fund, maybe they're trying, to, they're trying to claim success in this area of their overall valuation levels. They don't want to see that come down. So you have you have a conflicts building there. 
You could have an, an acquirer is willing to pay a fair price for a company today, but the company can't sell itself because it can't bring itself to to admit that its value has fallen. Uh, so these are these are happening, but there's a lot more still in front of us, unfortunately, to work its way out. Um, and um, so that's a, a little more about what's going on in the world of valuation. So any, any thoughts on, on valuation issues, Steve, are you seeing this too or something different? Yeah, no, we're, we're seeing that everywhere. Right. I mean, it's, it's a challenging time again. This isn't new. It's not new. I mean, this is a cycle we've seen before. Um, you know, obviously there, there were valuations coming down, like you said, that the triggers cram downs and then also, you know, um, you know, boards with different agendas. And that's just, <laughs> I've been there, done that. It's pretty, it's tricky for a CEO to navigate, um, you know, and, and obviously challenging. And, you know, I do worry, I think about all the managers and leaders there, you know, um, um, it's, you know, there are, you know, um, this can be very disincentivizing for management. Um, and so, um, well, there's still, you know, there are brighter days ahead and value can be created and, and harvested. But I think this is an interesting phase of, you know, these adjustments that, you know, reset the market value. But at the same time, you know, we got to keep the manager management team incentive incented, right, to to succeed and to continue to play hard. So it's a it's um there's some art and science, you know, in, in this stage, I think, of uh, when, the, when the economy is, is like this. Um, and again, a tricky thing as you alluded to earlier, um, no one really knows when it ends, right? <laughs> so it adds, it adds a lot of, a lot of complexity. Great. Great. Thank you. That, 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 that's a good perspective. Uh, and from our audience, uh, Dave is commenting that, uh, that, um, many mental and behavioral health issues are symptoms of metabolic dysfunction. So as a society, Obesity levels keep rising and rising. People eat rich diets. They don't exercise as much as they should. They become obese. And then uh, things start not working so great in their body. Their ability to handle sugar you know, starts not working as well. They, uh, so well. They get on a path to developing diabetes. This is metabolic syndrome. Uh, and so, I had, Dave, I hadn't made this connection before, but with obesity rates being so broad-based and rising, you know, some of these mental and behavioral health issues could be symptoms of, of, of metabolic dysfunction brought about by, you know, eat, eating too much, being too sedentary. So that, that's very interesting. Thank you, Dave. Um, so now moving on to upcoming conferences. So here um, we uh, talk about our favorite conferences, whether we would go. Um, I try to look at things from the perspective of the CEO of a digital health company in a specific sector, would you go to this? Would you pay the fee? Which is it worth the time? What what could you accomplish at this? Um, and so, um, and for our audience, if you know of conferences and you are asking the question of yourself, should I go? Should I pay the money? Feel free to type it in the room chat, and we'll we'll give you a mini review of that conference. So, uh, my first one I'll bring up. This is going on right now: the Can Lions International Festival of Creativity, June nineteenth to twenty. Third in in, uh, in in Cannes in in France. Um, so why is this conference on our list? By the way, tickets are four thousand euros, and you can buy tickets up to ten thousand euros. So it turns out that there's a part of digital health which is pharma doing consumer advertising that uh, goes to this conference. Um, so pharma. It goes to, uh, you know, all those ads on television that you see, you know, take the purple pill, whatever. Um, 
th these are brand managers who are spending lots of money on flashy content for consumers. Um, and their agencies also go to con uh, and, um, uh, and they, they get awards there, that sort of thing. Um, but I, I heard a, a joke, which was that if, if, if you're in digital health and you hear that if you work for a digital, a young digital health software company that's venture backed and you hear that your CEO is going to the con lions international festival of creativity, you need to start looking for a new job. <laughs> um, so, so no, I probably wouldn't go to this conference. This is more for, um, brand, brand managers at big, at big pharma with big budgets. Uh, this is not for the software vendors that sell into pharma brands and product managers to go to, I think. Um, uh, so, uh, Steve, any thoughts on the, on the Cor correlates with, you know, uh, cap cor it, it inversely correlates with capital efficiency, I guess. I mean, I, uh, that's interesting. I, I did not know that. So thanks for sharing. So then the drug information association annual conference is in Boston, June 25th to 29th. Uh, tickets are $2.4,000 uh, for this. And, you know, I, I bio is just a, a few weeks ago. I think bio is a great conference to go to for a bunch of reasons. And every one of those reasons is weaker with the drug information association. And so I, I think this is more for pharma industry people, especially people who are on the clinical side, as opposed to the commercial side of pharma for professional education, for networking, for other issues like that. Um, so if you sell into the pharma clinical budget, if you, if you sell clinical trial automation software, that could be a good reason to go to this conference. Um, but that was also a great reason to go to bio, which was just here. And so that, and so this is like a, a, a second runner up. If you missed bio, maybe you could make some hay at the drug information association. So the kinds of people you, you meet, you know, this is again, not as many as at bio, um, but it's like pharma innovation executives, they'll be there. Pharma venture funds, some of them will be there. Uh, uh, venture funds that invest in pharma tech, some of them will be there. 95% um, of the people at this conference are there for the molecules, not the bits, but you're there for the bits. And, for, and so finding the five or fewer percent of people who care about software and bits is a maze. It makes it a harder conference to go to. It's not specialized in digital health. Um, so in general, you know, if I, I'd, I'd say, um, you know, uh, if you sell, if you're a CEO of a digital health company that sells in the pharma clinical budget, maybe go, but it's better to go to, to bio than this. So any, any thoughts on, on DIA this year? Well, I'm, yeah, I'm with you. I think that's spot on. I, um, I will be there. Um, but that's largely that, people that um, people that have been discussion and know will be there as well. So it's an opportunity to just get time with them in a, in a, in a, in a common venue. Um, but, uh, but I think you're spot on in terms of the comparison between bio and uh, DIA. And then next. Um, so uh, I'll just briefly touch on uh, health 2.0 in Las Vegas, um, July 10th to 12th. Uh, $2,000 tickets. Um, so this is actually, a, this is so unusual. Um, <laughs> so I know Matt Holt, Matthew Holt, who founded Health 2.0. Uh, uh, Steve, you probably know him as sure. well. Uh, and I've, I've spoken at Health 2.0. I've gone to it for a few years. Uh, Matthew Holt it was visionary to create this conference, and I'm glad he did. And then he ultimately sold it to Hims, And then Hims changed its name and completely dropped the use of Health 2.0. And then strangers who Matthew Holt has nothing to do with and who don't know him, he doesn't, and who he doesn't know, um, started a new Health 2.0 conference um, because HIMSS had not protected, dropped the use of and did not protect the name Health 2.0. 
And so uh, I, I think this is the first year um, I, I haven't been to this new conference. Um, uh, I, I, I'm not impressed by it. I think it takes years to build out the networks. You're convening an ecosystem. You're convening investors, young companies, consolidators, um, you know, uh, others together at a conference. And I just somehow doubt, having not not gone, uh, but knowing that this was a name picked up, you know, uh, because Hims didn't protect it, uh, and that Matthew Holt had nothing to do with it, uh, and didn't even know. I, I told Matthew Holt about this conference. <laughs> um, that is that so, is so strange. Um, I have to say, I did not know that back, so I just assumed it was uh, reboot. Uh, wow. Yeah. Um, and I'm just curious if so you know. Not, I mean, the uh, uh, whoever's driving the 2.0 health 2.0. This year, I mean, do they have a pedigree in this space, or is this are they is this purely opportunistic? Uh, d don't know. I, I, I'm I'm guessing it's it's opportunistic, yeah. um, but it's not affiliated with Matthew yeah. Holt. It's not affiliated with Hims. Um, so weird. And uh, so uh, that that's July in Las Vegas. You know, not not going to that. Although. <laughs> The original conference was a product conference for for young digital health companies. It, you know, that, that's what the original conference was, and then, and then it, and then it grew bigger and became more of a, of a convening of the early stage innovation sector. So finally, I'll just mention that I am hearing people saying that they are buying their HLTH tickets early. So HLTH twenty twenty three will be in October in Las Vegas. And I'm hearing people saying they're buying their tickets early to get the discount. Um, uh, HLTH tickets are pricey. Um, and um, that they're also thinking of not going to JP Morgan, which is in Jan the second week of January in, in uh, San Francisco. So that's interesting. And I will probably do that. I'll do the, I'll buy my HLTH tickets early. And then I may also go to San Francisco, JP Morgan, San Francisco, just because I like it so much. And, I, I, and if, if people aren't going, then that opens up an opportunity for me to throw a party. And so I'll go and throw a party <laughs> there. Um, so, uh, Stephen, any, any thoughts on, do you have a favorite conference? Yeah, I'll, that, I'll, I'll, I'll probably attend both. Um, you know, I hadn't gone to JP Morgan for years during the pandemic and all that. And I didn't go to the one in January, and I regret it. Uh, because I just, for whatever, I'm not raising money, but... Um, you know, it's just, it's just a great opportunity to meet, you know, old friends and so forth. And I, I didn't go. And it was strange because that week, a lot of everyone I knew was over there. <laughs> and I, and I, and I thought, well, I really missed out. I should have, I should have gone. So I, I think there's a little bit for me, once bitten twice shy, will probably be at JP Morgan uh, in January this time. That's great. And so on the one hand, I, I think that the value is there in JP Morgan and, and people are definitely, um, are, are you, you can, you know, the, the goal is to get, my, my goal is to get like five or more good meetings per day. When I go to JP Morgan's, yeah. you can definitely do that. You literally write to people that you barely know and you just assume they're going to be there. Um, and then you say, let's meet. And they say, yes, because uh, they're all in meeting mode yeah. or whatever. Right. You, you, um, you have about five coffee meetings, you know, two lunches, two dinners and, <laughs> and, 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 and feel, you feel, you know, feel totally bloated by the end of the day. And, and enough people are going that uh, uh, that that still works. And JP Morgan Conference is back. On the on the flip side, the JP Morgan Conference, the the real money of what JP Morgan is doing there is about public biotech. And so everything else is just a sideshow. No programming for digital health, you know, uh, etc. Uh, and so um, the HLTH conference 
uh, is is about is fundamentally convening the ecosystem of innovators, especially VCs and young companies. So that, that that's that's a home run. That's that is a conference literally about what we do. Um, and public biotech plays almost no role at HLTH. And so um, it's it's you know it's it's trying to come in and for our part of of healthcare, the software innovation part of healthcare. HLTH is meant to be a, a, a category winner uh, and to, and it's positioned on the calendar such that if you go to it, you don't need to go to JP Morgan. And a lot of people don't like, you know, taking taxis in the rain at JP Morgan from small hotel to small hotel uh, and, that, and that sort of thing. So, um, for, so for, for now, now bucks we'll a night too, or whatever the yeah. crazy hotel costs are. Yeah. Yeah. So then, uh, so did you have any other conferences you wanted to, uh, mentioned? Uh, no, I think that, no, that's a good list. So then industry reports. So, uh, I didn't see any particular reports this past week with important findings relevant to our audience. Um, Stephen, any, any, any reports you want to mention? Um, yeah, well, you know, I, I was, I was lucky enough to be, uh, in a briefing, uh, by McKinsey, um, about generative AI. Um, it's obviously something that I, you know, follow very closely and, you know, and something obviously we'll be discussing in a little bit. Um, and I think it was interesting. I mean, I can't, I can't really, you know, quote it because it was, you know, I didn't, I didn't personally, you know, pay for the research, but, um, you know, it was very interesting. I thought it was on, on multiple levels. I mean, for better, or for worse, consistent with kind of our thoughts and observations, um, you know, I think the thing that was maybe most, uh, humorous or maybe insightful was, you know, folks at McKinsey kept saying, well, you know, check again in about two weeks because it's such a rapidly evolving space. Um, and but, uh, you, you know, it's obviously a very interesting topic. Um, and we definitely see patterns in terms of kind of questions and that they were getting. We get all the time as well um, at New Fire. And I think some similarities in terms of how we're approaching this kind of evolving and very dynamic um uh, space. That, that, that's great. Thanks. Um, so then moving on from industry reports to personal notices. So um, I'll just cite uh, my next Boston drinks night for July. Will be, it will be July 13th at the Liberty Hotel bar, 530 to 830 p.m. Uh, and uh, just convening the the innovation part of healthcare in Boston, especially the software innovation part of, of, of healthcare in Boston. And so I'd love to see anyone from my audience, you know, come, uh, you can, you can register by going to stephenwardell.eventbite.com. You'll see a list of all the shows and all the events there. Um, uh, and, uh, and hope to see you there. Um, so Stephen, do you have any personal notices for the audience? Um, well, you know, well, first, you know, we, we I'll, uh, I'll plan to see you at the, at your, at the event. Um, you know, our CTO, uh, Will Crawford and I plan to be there and hopefully have a couple drinks with you and, uh, you know, some of the, uh, your, and, and I guess other colleagues. So we're looking forward to that. And, uh, for this work, it's great meeting people in person. I mean, it's <laughs> coming out of the pandemic. I kind of feel like these events are, um, not even more important, but, you know, even maybe in some ways even more enjoyable, uh, just as people are just happy to be, to feel the camaraderie, you see everyone in 3D, I guess. So I'm definitely looking forward to that. Um, in terms of personal notice, just um, maybe just from the new fire perspective, I think we shared, you know, with you, Steve, we've had a couple kind of exciting additions to our leadership team. 
uh, a little over a month ago, we added um, uh, Sonali Domli as our uh, chief people and transformation officer. Uh, she was most previously at, at Invocer, um, uh, where she was the, the chief people officer. And before that, she was um, uh, she was at Bain & Co. for about 14 years as a senior executive. So she was a great addition to our team. And then more recently, just a couple of weeks ago, we announced uh, Will Crawford, who I just mentioned as our chief technology officer. And Will's just a, a great guy, an industry veteran. Um, he was most recently the chief technology officer at Medically Home, um, which is a very successful care at home play, you know, backed by, um, you know, Kaiser Mayo Clinic. I think I think combined they put about $200 million in that company. Um, he was also the uh, chief product officer of um, a smart sense digi, an internet of things company. And before that, I guess his claim to fame is that he was the uh, early investor in the VP of engineering uh, a Fitbit, that activity tracker company where he joined them when they were a startup in a garage and, you know, was on the ride to get them public. I think they got to 5 billion of market cap or something before Google bought them. So he's a great ish in our team. And like I said, I'll, I would, we're going to try to bring him to your event and, you know, hopefully, you know, can have some great dialogues with uh, you and other colleagues. So Will is a, a Boston legend, um, and uh, I first heard about him when he was kicking around inside of Harvard hospitals in the Boston area doing innovative things. And I learned recently that there is a legendary Harvard Medical School professor, Isaac uh, Cohane, um, who I think very early in his career chose to make his career at Harvard Medical School be about bioinformatics, which people at the time thought was a terrible career move and would inevitably lead to his, him getting turfed out of Harvard or something and, and had nowhere to go. Um, and instead, it turned out to be a fabulous area to be in. Uh, and mo most recently, he was given, OpenAI gave Isaac Cohen at Harvard Medical School early access to GPT-4 for medicine. Um, and then he wrote a book about it. And what I learned was that uh, the reason Will Crawford was bouncing around Harvard hospitals doing, doing IT things was because that was his, I think that was his first job or early career was working for Isaac Cohen. So really interesting uh, uh, guy, uh, innovator in, in the Boston area. So, uh, well, that, that, that's great. Um, so now we'll move on to our, our main topic. Uh, and I guess, um, you know, uh, you have had a chance to actually use generative AI in the workplace for an enterprise and also uh, to think about how professionals would use it in, in coding, which is one of the big areas where it's named as possibly helping coders be more productive. Um, and, uh, you know, but AI has been a buzzword in IT and in healthcare IT for probably 20 years. And I, I like to use the example that when Microsoft Word had spell check, that was called artificial intelligence <laughs> at the time. Yeah. Um, and so nevertheless, we're in revolutionary times. People are excited about this new stuff in AI. Um, and so what's what's different? What's new? Why is it important now? And, and we weren't as aware a year ago. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it's, you know, it's, so, it's so interesting. I, you know, I, if, if I were a sports commentator, I would describe AI as, as this overnight success that's been, you know, decades, like you said, in the making. Um, obviously, a large part of that is it's become so, you know, widely discussed in the mainstream, in the mainstream, right? Um, you know, to a point where, you know, my wife, who is non-technical, you know, she's a, she's a dance teacher. You know, she uses ChatGPT generative AI, AI to, you know, plan our family vacations, you know, and that. And so, you know, to, to answer your question more directly, you know, I think I think the buzz is 
largely driven by this crossover, right, to the mainstream. Um, ChatGPT is a huge driver of that. You know, I think the frequently quoted statistic is, what is it? And I hope I get this right. I mean, it's like uh, um, it had 100 million users within 60 days. And so nothing else really even comes close to that. And that's just, that's, that's just incredible. But, you know, even, even with ChatGPT, you know, what a, not many people, maybe not many people appreciate is that, you know, these LLMs, these large language models have been around for a long time. And even, um, you know, ChatGPT, which is based on GPT-3, I think when it came out, that had been around for like half a year. And, you know, it didn't create a buzz. It was only kind of simply when OpenAI put a very simple front end on that LLM that it, you know, you know, it, it really took off. And uh, if you, if you listen to Sam Altman, kind of the Y Combinator, um, you know, talks, he really talks about, you know, you know, you know, years ago about, you know, it's about, you've got to build these apps that people can't live without. <laughs> and I think they've been successful in that regard with, uh, you know, open AI, but uh, at ChatGPT, but um, I mean, to your point, I mean, I think generative AI is in some ways is, is this next step of this, you know, this many year progress in AI advancement, you know, where 20 years ago, maybe it was more, I would call it kind of rules-based models. Um, I'm not quite sure spell check counts as AI, but, you know, far more kind of hardwired, you know, uh, rules orientation where there was very, there was limited decisioning by, you know, programmatic decisioning. And we advanced to more machine learning and then more recently to, you know, or, you know, more recently as the last 10 years, you know, um, kind of neural networks, so, so, so-called, you know, deep learning models. And then now, of course, generative AI, which has been around for a few years, but has certainly improved and, you know, touched the mainstream, I think, you know, captured their imagination. If, if I were to add to that also, so um, my understanding is that, that part of the way that generative AI of the type that we're seeing with ChatGPT, part of the way it works is that it's writing and it's trying to pr- sort of predict, use use its knowledge of the works of Shakespeare, for example, to predict what would be the next word it would use in a new poem it made up in the language of Shakespeare or whatever. And so uh, that's, and so that this prediction ability requires a lot of of processing, a lot of compute. um, And that compute has been, the the models have been getting bigger, better, the compute more cost-effective. And it's finally gotten good enough to be looked at by the public. Uh, and this is in part being powered by um, uh, uh, by bigger and better GPU chips, which were initially made for graphics and, and computer games that needed massively parallel processing instead of the kinds of serial processing you get with CPU chips in computers. And so gamers, in a sense, paid crazy amounts for their computers for years in order to get these better graphics chips, which now it turns out are very good for, for AI and now more cost-effective and affordable and providing better compute for AI. And lastly, there's a story that comes from people like Ray Kurzweil and Peter Diamandis that you often get apparent breakthroughs for the, the consuming public when you get a change in the user interface, when the user interface goes from the DOS interface to the Windows interface, suddenly that's perceived as a huge breakthrough um, by, the, by the public. And you might have a, a takeoff in sales of spreadsheets and word processing software and, and email software because people are now using Windows. Well, that came in the form of the chat interface. So literally taking a chat interface, putting it on GPT-3 or GPT-3.5, um, you know, is what is what made it usable by uh, by 
by a hundred million people instead of formerly you had to you had to you had to almost uh, code your your questions to it. It, it, it didn't readily understand um, uh, uh, you know uh, chat. So those are just additional things I'd say is what's exciting about the last six months or so. Yeah, no, that's right. I think there's a, um, that's right. I mean, I think. Um... It's these, you know, these breakthrough products are often, you know, you know, in retrospect, the most obvious, right? So, you know, the fact that we've, you know, it's been made to be so simple, easy to access. And frankly, now there are even these secondary apps that are, that you can download the app store that are really just chat GPT to make it even simpler, right? But um, yeah, that certainly is, uh, is true. And, and further, yeah, to your point, I mean, there has been a lot of progress behind the scenes that, um, and some more recent than others that have made this more possible. There's tremendous computational power that's necessary. And I think, you know, we probably all read it's, you know, it's, it's, it's in the billions of dollars, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars to, of computing power to create these, you know, these, these original large models, which then of course can be fine tuned. Um, but it's also the other interesting factoid is yes, these are the same processes that, that can power, uh, power a lot of crypto cryptocurrency mining. <laughs> um, so maybe there was even an effect that, Hey, you know, now that cryptocurrency is tanked, you know, for now, what are we going to do with all this, you know, GPU power. Well, I guess, you know, you can power, you know, tools, you know, uh, things like chat GPT. So I think literally in places like uh, Miami, you have teams overnight um, changing their priority from crypto to AI uh, and, and they don't even have to change the chips um, <laughs> when they do it. Um, so uh, why don't we step back a bit? We've been talking about generative AI using large language models. Um, what are the different kinds of useful AI in healthcare? For example, um, there's been a lot of buzz around computer vision in healthcare and for things like pathology. Uh, and people may not have heard of machine learning. Is that AI? Is that not AI? Is it part of AI? Um, uh, can you give, give us a little bit of an overview of what are the kinds of, of different technologies we're talking about, especially if they're, if they're likely useful in healthcare? Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, AI is one of these things which um, is definitely, there's, uh, the term is overused. It's certainly described things that are not classically AI. Um, I, you know, I was in Las Vegas a couple months ago at a conference uh, about AI and HR. Um, and and this is, it's a topic I'm interested in because I've got, you know, hundreds of people all over the world and I'm interested in what tools can help me drive collaboration and connectivity and community and so forth. And so I went to that show wanting to learn, you know, the latest. And, and I was very curious about the exhibitor floor and seeing, you know, what the latest, greatest. And it's funny, I don't, I'm not sure actually, even though the whole conference is about AI, I'm not sure I single, saw a single product that was truly AI, you know, it was kind of like, see these product demonstrations. And I would say, it's, that's just a database call, you know, it's, that's not artificial intelligence. Um, and also, you know, there's a lot of baggage because of all this um, kind of hype, this, um, um, you know, in Hollywood and so forth, the Terminator and all these things. And as, as technologists, you know, we used to joke that, uh, you know, marketing calls AI and, you know, software developers would call it machine learning or something like that. But, you know, but to answer your question more directly, you know, um, AI is a broad term and it's real. Uh, it's been around for a long time, as we, we said. I, th I think for my non-technical, you know, friends, you know, I would I would describe this umbrella of AI of you know, having a couple, you know, kind of key categories. Uh, much of the AI that's kind of out there, you know, it's been historic, you know, it's been out there that predating kind of the more recent generative AI. 
I would put in the category of uh, machine learning. And, you know, more specifically, you know, machine learning are really kind of systems and techniques that are designed to find, you know, patterns. Um, and, you know, many machine learning systems are things that we would call classifiers, which are tools to put things you know, in a category. Um, and the classic example that I use, I probably overuse, is that, you know, you know, Google is very good at discerning a picture of a cat versus a picture of a dog. Um, like you and I can see it, see a picture like that's a cat, that's a dog. But the fact that, you know, a computer has been trained to do this uh, is really interesting. It's really fascinating, I think. Um, and of course, they did that by feeding, you know, millions of pictures. I think it was like three or four million pictures of cats and dogs and then providing supervised and unsupervised training of the models. And after a while, you know, the system began to see patterns. You know, pattern, like, you know, as you and I would describe it, oh, you know, maybe a cat's kind of more feminine and a dog is maybe more masculine in terms of their features. But the way kind of, you know, and that's not always the case, right? It's a generalization. But the, um, you know, the way, you know, machine learning, these classifiers work are to determine patterns that might be, you know, the ratio of the nose to the eye to the eye, to the distance between the nose to the eye and the eye and the eye is and a bunch of other parameters combined suggest high probability it's a cat versus a different set suggests it's a dog, right? And so, you know, these patterns um, are determined by feeding these systems lots of data um, and, and it's able to make these kind of classifications. Um, and it's fascinating because, you know, some of, you know, how, a, how, how Google is able to determine that picture is a picture of a cat you know, is not easily describable by human language, right? It, it's, you know, it, it's kind of more algorithmic and mathematical. And it's just, you know, part of the kind of the magic and the, you know, the mystery uh, of AI. And to your earlier question, you know, is this useful for digital health? Of course it is, right? Um, you know, I mean, I just, you know, great example, of course, is, you know, we think about population health, risk stratification, you know, basically they're using classifiers. And these classifiers don't have to be binary. They don't have to be black and white, dichotomous, cat or dog, right? But you can train these systems on classifying multiple parameters, which help you, you know, predict, um, you know, a risk level or something after looking at lots of data. Um, and, at, you know, New Fire Global Partners, I mean, we've been doing this, you know, the company's about eight years old. We've probably been doing this for about eight years. Um, and there have got many, many examples of building these systems for our clients um, my favorite one is um, a drug adherence problem that we worked on. Um, really cool. Um, this is for a population in South Africa, where, as you know, the incidence of you know, HIV AIDS is, is pretty high. Um, at the same time, you know, the medications are so good. You, you can have AIDS and take medication and you, know, you can be non-infectious for the rest of your natural life. But you have to keep taking the meds. Uh, and one interesting, almost perverse problem is people, so the medication is so good, they think they're cured. Um, and so for, for drug adherence, it's very important that people stay on meds or else they become infectious, they make other people sick, and it's a bad thing. So we actually helped build a system to try to predict, and we, have, and we were able to successfully do this, which patients were most likely to stop taking their HIV meds. And then we would give that list every week to nurses who would then reach out to the population. Um, and that was, you know, I think extremely fulfilling to see it work. Um, and it's funny, these projects, you start saying, you know, I don't, I can't give you a priori knowledge that I can, I can't claim a priori, you know, that this is gonna work, but we're gonna test this out, look for a signal. 
And, you know, this is working with high confidence in some ways validated by the nurses because they're very intuitive. And for them, they describe, they describe it as witchcraft. Just kind of like, wow, how did your system know that that guy was going to stop taking meds? That was, that was the call I needed to make. And, you know, even when we study this kind of, again, it's hard to describe in human words, but algorithmically, um, algorithmically, it looks, it's something around, you know, it's not even social determinants. It's kind of, it has something to do, did the person kind of reschedule their appointments? Um, and that seems, you know, again, you can let me describe mathematically, but that was some sort of indicator that they were thinking about stopping their medication. And, you know, when I've talked about this with other, with friends in this, in the, you know, in, in data scientists and so forth, you know, they would say, it's really odd. You'd think it was the person who didn't show up at their appointments anymore. That'd be the person that stopped taking the medication. But talking to the nurses, you know, one, one idea theory is, well, those folks are people who know they need to take the meds and, and that's why they don't go to the appointments. It's almost like the patients who kind of hesitate and not sure the system, the, the, the machine learning somehow picks up the pattern that this person's starting to waver about the necessity of the medication. So, um, so that's a great example of, um, you know, of, of, you know, sorry, traditional, can I call it machine learning? Uh, and like I said, we've done many, many projects about that. And um, I think, as you know, I mean, healthcare has become increasingly data oriented. And these are the things, the great things that we can do, you know, with the data. That uh, so that's great, and that's a great example. Both uh, the example of um, machine learning is feeding, you know, Google's machine learning program hundreds of thousands of images of cats and dogs, and letting it figure out the difference between them, so it can now accurately do it uh, afterward, and also predicting who's going to stop taking their meds. Uh, and I, I hadn't heard of that uh, application, but that sounds, sounds like a great like a great one. Um, so. Um, uh, can you tell us more about, so that, that's where AI is kind of fitting into uh, healthcare. Um, what about generative AI? Can you tell us more about how generative AI, what it is and how it could uh, fit into healthcare? Yeah, well, that, yeah, well, that's, that's great. Yeah. So, so, you know, again, this kind of classification is, you know, an example of uh, kind of traditional or, you know, I would say almost mainstream machine learning. Those techniques are improving all the time. Right. So, you know, that is not, you know, it's not, it's not settled business, right? It's, it's a subtle technology. It's still evolving um, on a maybe a related and separate path is this, you know, is generative AI um, and generative AI. It's a different approach than the classifiers. Um, instead, generative AI, um, you know, it leverages what is known as uh, latent data um, and latent data. That's a it's a statistical term, right? Um, latent these latent variables are you know, things that um, you know cannot be observed. They can only be like inferred from other observable data. So, you know, a great example that I often give is you know economists use the kind of latent happiness variable, right? Which is um, it's impossible to measure really if you know population was happy, but it can be inferred by other variables like you know the amount of time population is being spent on leisure or household income or you know, level of crime rates and so forth. So, you know, that's kind of a, a you know, a statistical term of kind of latent data. So, you know, um, things like ChatGPT and, you know, MidJourney, which is a um, kind of this AI art generator, which I'm a big fan of, by the way, 
Um, those are current generation AI tools and they leverage basically the latent data. And, you know, when I was at DHIS, I gave a talk, I gave a presentation, showed a couple of examples. Um, you know, I showed a poem that was, you know, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star written uh, in the style of William Shakespeare. Um, I also uh, created an image of um, kind of a five-year-old uh, Asian American girl in a style of a of, like English Tudor royalty. Now, of course, these things did not exist previously. You know, um, you know, there, you know, there, there is no, there was no British princess in the 15th century that looks like my daughter, right? But the the, the output we were able to create with ChatGPT for the poem, and also this image from Midjourney was just, I mean, it was it was very impressive. And they were they were able to do the, the way the system was able to do that was to pull this from the latent data, this correlation of things that you know we don't see the pattern right so instead of you know looking at a pattern to classify it's going into the latent data to find a pattern to take a poem a well-known poem and now correlate it to things that make us think poetry shakespearean and that there's a mathematical model statistical uh derived probability in the latent data um, that generates that so um so it's it's me it's fascinating it's super exciting and again, a theme that you're kind of hearing from me, it's actually been around for a little while, right? So, um, you know, there was a, a key article, there was a key article, uh, research article by Google came out, I think in 2017, 2018. Um, and that was the technology, that was the research that generated something called BERT. Um, and I always kind of forget what the term means. It's something like bidirectional encoder represented, represented representations from transformers, BERT. Most people in the industry just call it transformers. Um, but this kind of research and this tool that was created based on a research back in 2018 is what made generative AI uh, possible. And then later was kind of the tools that created large language models and then allowed things like ChatGPT to be created. Um, at New Fire Global Partners, you know, we've been using BERT uh, since about 2019, about a year after the research was done. And we've also applied that to very interesting problems in digital health. Um, you know, we don't typically share the names of our, you know, clients, but we basically use these transformers um, for a company that basically wanted to automate uh, the prior authorization process. And so for those of you who know prior auth, it's kind of a, it's historically a laborious problem. Uh, there are companies that tried to attack it before, but it was really these date and call centers of people who are really kind of doing things behind the scenes. And so this client had a great idea of using the latest artificial intelligence to try to address that problem with automation. Um, and we helped build that, you know, using uh, transformers uh, like BERT. And, uh, and it worked. It worked. It was, and that company was ultimately acquired by Open AI, uh, sorry, by Olive AI, which you might have heard of, uh, and grew and grew. And Olive AI, I think, recently was, um, it's kind of now a little bit def defunct, but it was acquired by Availity. Um, and I don't know, I don't actually know the details of the transaction. I think it was an asset purchase, but the cool thing is that technology we created, that was a key asset that's continued on. Um, and so, you know, again, so generative, uh, chat GPT is all the craze. Um, but these concepts of generative AI have been around, you know, I mean, I think of 2018, 2019 as, you know, um, not exactly recent, it's been around for a little while. And I think, you know, we have examples 
where these tools can be applied into great effect at, at automation, um, you know, in healthcare. And of course, you know, prior off, it's, it's, um, you know, there can be, there can be, you know, there can certainly be benefits to patients in terms of, you know, shorten the time to these, some of these decisions and so forth. Right. So to me, this is something, you know, um, you know, pretty, pretty compelling and something that, again, another example of something that we've done that I'm, I'm really proud of. That's great. Thanks. Um, and uh, so let, my next question is, you know, what are the business opportunities for this in healthcare? But I also want to, for our, our audience to open it up, you guys feel free to ask questions in the room chat. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I was part of an online discussion with a number of, of experienced people in healthcare. We were talking about generative AI and what it could be used for. And we saw possibilities, but also challenges in using it. For example, that generative AI can be wrong, uh, for example. Um, and uh, one of the opportunities that came up was accurate risk coding of patients by healthcare providers for payers. Um, that was an intriguing example of a use of it. So, um, you know, uh, uh, a, a physician might keep an accurate medical record, but spend less time. And nevertheless, the case would be accurately risk coded for medical records and for payers. Um, so that was an intriguing one that I heard, but what, what do you see as the business opportunities in healthcare for, for, AI and generative AI. Yeah, it's interesting. We, I mean, we get asked that a lot. You know, a lot of our clients are, uh, you know, uh, private equity VCs, you know, some you know, tech startups with, you know, lots of ideas. Um, you, you know, the crystal ball is not, <laughs> is not always clear, but there, I can tell you there are a lot of, there are a lot of opportunities and, um, you know, I kind of joke, you know, what else is hiding in the latent space, right? What questions should we be asking that we haven't asked yet? Um, and to me, I think an area of drug discovery, I mean, to me, that's a particularly exciting space because there's a corpus of tremendous amount of data, you know, about these, you know, these molecular structures, their, their applications to therapeutics. Um, and, you know, it's, I think it's very interesting to, to you know, use generative AI to perhaps hypothesize what other therapies might be available. Um, and of course, these need to be developed and tested and so forth, but just, you know, just as one example, when I think of impact to society, you know, all those incurable diseases that, you know, maybe could get cured or have, you know, have therapies. I mean, to me, just, I mean, the, you know, the one reason why I've been so uh, all in in healthcare for most of my career is, you know, the, the benefit to society is, is, you know, is, is the exciting thing. And, and in that particular example, generative AI, I mean, it could really, um, could be a game changer in such a positive way where, even if AI generates just, you know, groundbreaking progress there, you know, the benefits of society is it just, it could, it could be so tremendous. And, and, and I think, uh, and I think, you know, you know, our, our thoughts on AI will, will evolve even more. So, I mean, I think there are other also areas as you described as well, that, um, oh, just, to, just to jump oh. in there, that, that's really interesting. And I, I hadn't thought of that before, but an, an interesting analogy is that famously, oil companies have huge amounts of seismic data they have been collecting for 60 years of spots all around the world. And they keep going back to data, including old data, because geology data doesn't change that much over time, and applying new ways to look at the data they collected very expensively to guess, oh, you know, this part of the Permian Basin, this part of the Gulf of Mexico, this part of whatever, you know, we 
uh, didn't spend the money at the time to explore those areas, but but we're relooking at our data and maybe we're applying generative AI to it, uh, not the open AI's chat GPT model, but rather a our database, you know, their engine on our database. And now we can go back with with some new theses about where to find the oil. So likewise, there are companies that have enormous amounts of data on uh, molecules in the human body that are affected by drugs. Um, and also the shape, uh, the, the molecular structure of successful drugs and failed drugs and drug candidates. Yeah. Um, and it's the way these interact, a, you know, for pain relief, a certain large molecule drug will bond in a certain way with a certain part of the body that procedural certain genetics have or whatever. And we, we, we don't have enough people who are deeply immersed in that to really explore all the possible opportunities. But if your database is not, not whatever is feeding ChatGPT today, but rather your database is that company's proprietary database of this information is collected over years. Uh, and then you put that engine on top of it, you might, it might steer you in a direction, hey, here's a, here's a molecule that overcomes the blood solubility issue that, 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 that you stumbled on for all, all those years ago and you could never make something to, uh, you know, to inhibit uh, this molecule in the body um, because of the blood solubility issue. But now we think we found one for you that you overlooked in the past. So very interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that, uh, you know, uh, and I think we're talking about a, um, a generative AI engine on top of a company's proprietary data uh, as, right. as opposed to whatever data is in AI today, which, which we don't actually know. It's a whole lot of data. It's a whole lot of data, but we don't know what we, we don't know what's in there. And we know that proprietary drug data is not in there probably because that's owned by companies that never let, that never gave it to open AI. Yeah. Well, that generative capability um, is now inherent in these large language models. So, in this example with the uh, kind of the, the molecular database, um, more is always better, but it doesn't have to be at a scale to, to create the large language generative capability, right? So as an example, you know, it's, we, we do something that's mundane at New Fire where, you know, uh, we, you know, we only have hundreds of employees, but, you know, we can fed, feed employee survey data, NPS scores and so forth, and ask ChatGPT to, you know, detect trends and so forth. Um, and that's, it's certainly, certainly capable in doing that. So yes, I mean, so this is, this is definitely you know, personally a very exciting area. I think there are other areas to your earlier question of opportunities in healthcare, you know, many more that we haven't thought of yet, but, you know, I think of, I think of nuance, um, has invested a lot in generative AI to try to improve clinical documentation. Right. Um, I think not everyone appreciates that clinical documentation has actually suffered since the, since the adoption of EHRs, right. Having to do these you know, drag and drop in drop down menus have made clinical notes less useful. And so Genevieve AI has the ability to improve that. Um, you know, uh, I think you've referenced before lots of, uh, quite a few companies, uh, you know, are using, you know, AI assisted evaluation of, you know, you know radiological scans and, um, and pathology reports. The argument being, you know, you know, why utilize a fallible human who might've might see a, a million cases in their lifetime when you can, you know, use a system that is seeing, you know, 10, 10 billion cases or whatever. So, you know, that's exciting. I mean, obviously in these models, I think in the near term, it's gotta be kind of doctor in the middle, right? I, I don't think these systems should make those determinations by themselves, but, um, but you can imagine the things that might've been overlooked, um, you know, that the AI can certainly support, assist and, you know, and augment the physician. 
So um, when we hear about people using generative AI today, it's very often in a context of boosting productivity of knowledge workers. So there have been a couple of media shops that have said that they're laying off journalists uh, because they can have um, the, the stories written by generative AI. Um, there has been a big controversy about Hollywood screenwriters going on strike at the very moment that there's some generative AI products that are capable of writing Hollywood screenplays. Um, uh, and, uh, and then there's been a lot of talk about, um, about really impressive results of um, generative AI being applied to a, an engineer is literally coding and then generative AI run, it looks at the code and spots uh, a logical error um, or alternately uh, and, and then helps to debug the code or alternately you get code and you ask generative AI explain to me what the different parts of this code are doing and it literally will explain to you like a true expert uh, what the code is doing and so the, and and we've also heard that uh, some law some naughty law firms submitted uh, cases to a judge where the briefs were written by generative AI, which then had hallucinations and made up sources. And the judge actually read the briefs, which, the, which they don't have to do, and checked the sources, which they don't have to do, and found that they didn't exist. Um, so that's an idea of, of some stories we've heard of productivity. Um, but uh, you, know, you, you run a, a, a software development firm. Um, where do you see the use of, say, in-house, they could literally use OpenAI ChatGPT or Microsoft Bing uh, Chat AI, which are extremely similar products. Um, uh, or alternately, could they get an, an, a generative engine and apply it to their own emails, their own chats, their own code base, their own um, their own databases? Uh, what do you see as the the uses for productivity in the enterprise today? Yeah, no, I, I think there's huge potential and it's exciting. Um... You know, was it uh, late, late last week, less than a week ago? You know, I was actually in Croatia. We have three offices in Croatia. And I was lucky enough to present with uh, Will Crawford, our CTO, uh, at the uh, annual developers conference. I think we were in front of like hundreds, maybe a thousand software developers who were both excited and a little nervous about these new tools. Um, and the great news is I, I do think it's, um, I think it's a huge opportunity of productivity. Uh, we actually at Newfire, we've been, we've been trying to build um, hybrid teams, these AI-powered software development teams. People forget commercial software, it's written in teams. And now the idea of including some AI as part of a team member, you know, we've been doing that, we've been, we've been experimenting that since 2017. It's been something we call novel heat, which is a play on new fire. And, and again, I always jo I joke that I'm the only person in the world who thinks that's funny, but, um, um, but you know, I think there are many areas of advancement and ultimately what that means is faster, better and cheaper technology for our clients. And that means faster innovation, more things that, you know, we can do when it's easier to become a technology company. I think, I think a lot of new technologies and useful technologies uh, get built and I won't go in great detail. I don't, you know, I don't think this is a technical uh, group we've got today, but um, you know, a couple areas, you know, we, we definitely um, focus on quality. There's something called um, anti-patterns. These are software designs that look good and they work, but will fail down the road. So uh, an example would be a pattern to build a, a table before legs. 
you could build a table with three legs, it'll work, but it's not the best way to do it because you add more load or there's more you know, instability, it may collapse, right? So we, we used AI to build systems to double check our code to make sure we were building it in a pattern and not an anti-pattern approach. It was, it was called an anti-pattern detector. Um, and it's becoming more relevant as in the future when AI writes software, we need AI to double check the software, <laughs> you know? So, so it's, so it's interesting. The other thing is around, I think a lot of discussion around kind of pair pro programming, you know, it's kind of a luxury, you know, and some, uh, some companies that are well-funded and they don't have, you know, hyper aggressive deadlines. Um, you code in pairs, you have a coding partner and you check each other's work and you kind of, you know, just it's kind of a pilot co-pilot. You're making sure, you know, you know, no, no one's making an inadvertent mistake. Um, but it's a luxury. It's expensive. Um, and now with the advent of AI, you know, we envision teams that have, you know, AI coding partners. So the developer is coding, doing his or her best work. But you know what? There's a double check. Um, and so, um, you know, it's a whole, we could spend two hours and talking about the evolution of this and how to get and prepare for these types of things. But it's something we've thought about deeply um, and something we're very excited about. There is possibility for misuse and there's, there's safety issues. But this is why I think to apply, to take this approach requires, you know, some thoughtfulness. And again, we've been thinking about this for years. I do worry about a little bit of, if, if people get a little too fast and loose with this, you know, there are software developers who are not, you know, properly trained. They classically cut and paste source code. You can imagine AI applied in a maybe inappropriate way becomes kind of cutting and pasting on steroids. And so I think that, I think that's a danger for the industry uh, one that we're trying to educate and warn people not to call down that 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 that's kind of fast and, and fast and loose you know path, but I think applied appropriately, huge opportunity and I'm super super excited about it. I I've heard intriguing examples of people who you know don't have the hard skills, but uh, you know the most obvious example is with these graphics uh, AI systems. Someone will type in, they'll describe a, a new corporate logo, and then the system uh, will give them back a well-designed graphical image of their company's logo, let's say. And then they can say, make 50 variations on that, and boom, they'll get 50 variations on that, and then they can look at all the different logos and pick one. And likewise, so that, that's when it comes to graphic design. But likewise, I've even heard that you can get someone who is not a coder or developer will describe an app uh, for the Apple App Store uh, and will describe its, its feature functionality, what it does, uh, and then, uh, you know, OpenAI, uh, ChatGPT will write the code for that app. And with minimal further steps, it can be submitted to the Apple App Store and be approved as an app. Now, it may not have advanced functionality, uh, in the current version of it, uh, but that person didn't have to know how to code to do that. Now you could imagine, um, you know, they they say make a bunch of variations of this for a bunch of apps, um, and so this this really empowers someone who didn't have the time or maybe couldn't be a graphic designer, or couldn't be a coder, uh, can now do some of these interesting things. You also get to the level of that that law firm that submitted the bogus brief to the judge as well. Yeah. So you run that if. if if you're not already an expert, you run the risk that you're going to be holding this thing you think works, and then it turns out that it that it's wrong uh, or something. So, uh, so it, 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 uh, I think we'll, we'll 
we're going to enter an era of uh, you know of 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 a lot of instances of the story of the of the lawyer who submitted the bogus brief to the judge as well. So, um, but how how do organizations become prepared for um, you know for uh, to take advantage of AI, but also to avoid the pitfalls of AI? Uh, well, that's, that's, that's a big, that's a great question, <laughs> you know, and, and not, not, not one simply answered, but, you know, I think, um, maybe to, to get put some headlines on that. I mean, I think, uh, to leverage the promise of generative AI, um, there are a few things, you know, you know, a few things that should be top of mind. I mean, first of all, you know, we have to remember AI, it's all powered by data. Um, and all the forms of AI we talked about, remember it's, it's about, it's, a, it's, a, it's fueled by data. And so when we advise companies about um, starting to create their AI strategy and so forth, you know, there's a little bit of an audit. We kind of go back to basics and then we say, hey, if you don't have like, you know, data hygiene, if you don't have, you know, you know data lifecycle management policies and so forth, like, you, you know, you're kind of not even really at the starting line yet. So there's a little bit of, you know, trying to get some hygiene in place. Um uh, before you can really build on top of and, get, and leverage promise of a generative AI. I think there's also a, to your, you know, two point, more points. One is around, um, you know, I think, you know, uh, as you said, you have to be very specific, um, you know, and so it, it puts a emphasis on not like how to build, but what exactly are we building? Uh, because if you're not clear, you're going to find the AI is going to build what you said, but not what you wanted. And that can actually be dangerous because not all of it will be obvious, you know, and you may launch the thing and it may be touching patients and it built what you told it to build, but not what you actually wanted and all the edge conditions and all the safety. So you have to be an emphasis on being very clear about what the, you know, what the heck we're doing here. And then there is a need, and this may be tough for certain organizations, but there's a need for fungibility like AI. It's about automation really. Um, and you know, if there's only Billy Bob or Sally Sue who can do the job, you know, that that's a blocker. If they're non-fungible, it becomes a blocker to bring in the automation. Um, beyond that, there's a lot of, you know, change management, um, and, you know, about really setting, you know, really understanding what the goal is, like, what are we trying to achieve? Where are we, you know, take a no BS assessment. Where are we today? Um, and, you know, crafting, pressure testing, agreeing on an AI strategy and a policy. Um, and then there are certain skill sets that need to be brought in the organization. And then beyond that, it's your kind of, um, you know, almost your standard change management, which is implementing, piloting, monitoring, seeing what worked or didn't work, and then iterating and, and fastly, fail fast and, and improve quickly as well. Um, but, you know, the, the promise there, and I think if we do it, if you've done correctly, can be a lot of confidence building, a lot of excitement, and I think this has to be done because at the same time, look, we're, we're seeing the earlier stage companies embracing this and not the law of the jungle may be you know, relevant to the first part of this discussion. Many of those will fail. Maybe they won't get funded, uh, or, uh, but some will succeed. And those that succeed will start to become competitors in the industry with a very low cost structure, with a very different cost structure. And so the incumbents today, if they're not embracing this, you know, they're, uh, can I say, believe me now or believe me later? It's a lot cheaper if you believe me now. If you believe it later, it's you know far more expensive, right? So, but there are things to do. I think you know we call it an AI transformation, uh, which we help clients through, and and um, you know I think that that makes a lot of sense. The pitfalls there are many, right? There there are are many. Um, you talked about hallucinations. 
Um, you know, there's a little, there, there's a, uh, you know, really we have to, you know, there's a reliability and accuracy um, you need that's required. You know, we've, I think people talk about AI, talk about bias, you know, you know, uh, humans, we have our biases and, and that because, you know, the data is, the data powering these systems are based on human generated data. There's a risk of institutionalizing, even amplifying bias, right? Um, and there is, especially in digital health, I think one thing I worry about is um, explainability and transparency. Uh, at one level, I'm super proud. I mean, I'm, I can't tell you how proud I am of the drug adherence thing that we built. You know, I really feel that has, we have reduced infections. There are people who have not gotten HIV AIDS because of this system. Uh, I'm so excited. And at the same level, I can't exactly tell you how the system works. And there's a system that's prioritizing care. Now, thank goodness, like nurses tell us, well, it's really saving them time. It's making them far more effective. They're not, they're, they're not wasting their time on dead ends. So that gives me comfort. But at the same time, it's weird to have a system where we can't exactly articulate how it works. And this, it's making decisions about, you know, who gets care first, right? So that's, to me, something I wrestle with, you know. Um, and so, but, yeah, go ahead. But, but a really interesting point on that is that before the pandemic, there were some government officials who were talking about AI. They were trying to be, this is in, I think they were in FDA. Uh, but they were talking about AI. They were trying to be forward thinking about AI. And they brought up and stressed the explainability issue in AI. Uh, and there's a way to frame it that's very stark, which is that um, that AI has been used very successfully, and there's still a lot of investment going on in the world of diagnosis in healthcare. So the best example being um, computer vision AI in pathology and radiology and other areas like that. But also, uh, it doesn't have to be computer vision AI; it's other areas. And so you could have have a system that let's say it's an expensive system and uh, doctor, an expensive AI diagnostic system and highly trained doctors get their diagnosis right 95% of the time. Your expensive diagnostic system that is explainable gets it right 97% of the time. Great, that's, that, that's great. And then when it's wrong, you can look and see, it can explain why it did what it did, etc. Then you might get a cheap system that has a 99% accuracy, but is not explainable. And so what these officials were trying to say was we would rather have the more expensive system, so that's a drawback, that has a 97% effectiveness rate, that's a drawback because you could have a cheaper system with 99% effectiveness, but, it, but it's explainable. So when it goes wrong, we, we, can, we can improve it, we can fix it. Uh, and we don't, we're uncomfortable in medicine with things that can't be explained. So I thought that was a very interesting, you know, weighing those very challenging trade-offs um, that, that may have to be made. And then also the FDA putting a stake in the ground as to what may be coming down the, the pike. So, yeah, it's fascinating. It'll be interesting to see how it evolves. I, you know, I think there'll be systems that will be making decisions that, you know, frankly are unexplainable. And, and I think there'll be use cases where, I don't know. I mean, society may have to just accept that. I don't, I, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, we'll see, um, you know, but that also leads to, I think, another risk, which is this, I think we, you know, I think, I think there's a real risk of a dependency on AI. And I think I've, mm -hmm. and I've given this kind of example, I, I feel like, um, and, and especially, you know, when you don't know how it works, right? So, and I, I, I joke, I, you know, I, I make sure my children know that Alexa is not a human, yeah, that's a robot, but, um, but I do see a future where, you know, as I, as I told people, you know, when, when we don't know the answer, 
in the previous generation, you know, my mother, my mother's an example, you know, she would go to religion. She would go to the Bible. Like, gosh, I don't know what I'm supposed to do here. I, I think in the future, my children will may, instead of going, they, instead of religion, they may go to AI, <laughs> you know, what do I do here? You know, ask the, ask the robot or whatever. And so, you know, that, that when we outsource thinking, you know, that scares me. Um, and so this dependency on AI, but what happens when there are these decisions that, gosh, when AI just gets it right all the time and it's really difficult for us to figure it out. And, it, and the reward is something very valuable, like, you know, mom gets to live or something, you know, it'd be very interesting as how society and how the policymakers decide to, you know, to navigate something like that. And, you know, I, I don't think, I think that's within, it's certainly within our lifetimes and probably, you know, within, you know, three to five years. So, you know, very interesting. And then and finally, I think there's some regulatory issues to your point, which, you know, we don't even know how this will be regulated. So if I'm an entrepreneur, you know, like I hate idea of building a business where I might be regulated in ways that don't, you know, are not known to me yet. Right. And that's a, that's, that's a risk. That's a risk. So, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an exciting time. Um, and I think we'll be a net positive. Um, I'm not, a, I'm not, a, I'm an optimist. I don't think the Terminator is going to come and wipe us off the earth. But I think there will be a lot of thorny issues that, you know, I hope I hope we I hope we'll have a lot of smart people working on it. And I hope we'll be very honest with each other. I think that's necessary. So this, uh, you know, I think an interesting way to summarize this is is something that I heard proposed by um, Gary Kasparov, the famous um, chess champion who was the reigning grandmaster at the time that IBM's AI chess program beat him the rain, and was the first to beat ever to beat a reigning grand chess grandmaster. Uh, and he noticed that the international chess leagues require there be one human playing one human with no assistance. Um, and then they ban, they ban the use of, of AI and chess. And then AI companies will have, will have sort of chess matches um, where they have one um, AI engine playing another AI engine, or possibly an AI engine playing a grandmaster. And these are not recognized by chess. But then what Gary Kasparov saw and, and created was a new league. And the new league is a chess player and an AI playing a chess player and their AI. Um, and the way that works is that you're two chess players playing each other and you're allowed assistance now. And then your AI tells you the move it would make. Um, and instantly, uh, based on the move that the other player just made. But then you as a human get to decide what actually to do. And very often you don't do, you, you're informed by what your AI recommended doing, but you choose a different move. So you may say, I'll be more aggressive or less aggressive than my AI wanted me to be, for example. Um, and he found that, uh, that a human with AI, that, that almost always an AI beats a human, but uh, a human with AI usually beats AI alone. Um, and so now that there, and he, he called this, he calls this league a centaur league named after the idea of a beast that is half human, half horse. So the human that's us. And then the, the half horse part, that's the AI that we're with. So you have centaur playing centaur. Um, and this is an analogy for all professions and probably for life going forward, because in the future, you're going to have your doctor 
with your doctor AI, your nurse with your nurse AI, your lawyer with your lawyer AI. Um, we, we're all cyborgs already. We can't have it. We can't function daily without our smartphone. Uh, that will have an AI that that is giving you advice, tells you your next best action, gives you recommendations, um, and then you get to decide uh, what to do. But we're, we're sort of we're all centaurs now, basically. Is my is my takeaway from this? That's funny. Um, yeah, the other, you know, that's funny. The other uh, thing I've heard about you know AI and chess is, you know. I think someone also said that that famous chess game, you know, oh, this is the end of chess. But the reality is like chess has actually become more popular than ever. So, um, so you know, there are some unintended consequences, you know, good, 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 bad and good, I suppose. Yep, that's great. Well, good. Well, so um, for time reasons, we have to wind down now. But any any further thoughts, Steve? Uh no, I really I, I appreciate being part of the discussion with you. Hopefully, hopefully, uh, hopefully you found this interesting, and hopefully it was useful to uh, the attendees. Thank you so much. It's great to talk to an actual practitioner beyond just playing with ChatGPT myself. It's great to talk to actual practitioners using this at the enterprise level and the personal level as well. So thank so thanks for joining us. You bet. So you've been listening to Digital Health Investor Talk with host Stephen Wardell. Our thanks to our guest, Stephen Howe, uh, who's an industry-recognized technology entrepreneur and investor. He's currently the chairman and CEO of New Fire Global Partners, a tech advisory firm and software development firm that is based here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, with team members worldwide. Um, you can follow him at twitter.com slash Stephen Howe. Uh, our show next week is Selling into the Provider Budget in 2023 with Mark Anderson on Wednesday, July 12th. Mark Anderson is the CEO of AC Group and a former multi-time hospital CIO, and he specializes in the evaluation, selection, and ranking of vendors in the PMS, CMR, EHR healthcare marketplace. Uh, thanks, and we'll see you all uh, next week. Bye-bye.